0: This morning, continuing on from uh, the very good lesson that um, Terry gave us last week, Terry focusing on the question of what does it look like to love God with all our heart and our mind, all our soul, all our strength. Um, Today we're focusing upon the second half, as it were, that is to love our neighbour As ourself, and of course Matthew chapter 22 verses 35 through 40, if, if you don't have any other scripture committed to memory, I want to suggest to you that you, that you need to have this because Jesus himself said this is primary, this is fundamental. In fact, he says upon these commands, on these truths, All of the Law and the Prophets, of course, which was code at that time for what we would think of as the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament Scriptures, but there's no reason to think that the same doesn't apply to all of the Bible as we know it, both the Old and New Testament Scriptures. All of God's revealed truth hangs upon. It's probably a common but helpful way of expressing it these days. The Scriptures should be viewed through the lens of these two truths, love God and love your neighbour. Love God, and I put in brackets there, you'll notice, love the one God, because there are plenty of gods out there. So just, just to be sure that we're on the same page, we're talking about the creator God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the Father that Jesus came to reveal. Love that one God with everything you've got, basically. Um, drawn directly from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5, the Shema, which even to this day, conservative, faithful Jews recite typically twice a day. Sometimes we sing it here in our assemblies. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, Yahweh. Yahweh is one. Therefore, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. But the second, the second Commandment is like unto it, love your neighbour as yourself, which again is a direct quotation from Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 18. On these two commandments, says Jesus, all of God's revealed truth hangs, turns like a door on a hinge. Through these two commandments, we can view all the sum total of God's will. Now, we're going to just, I guess, systematically address three questions this morning. Who is my neighbour? That's a good question to try and define. Well, when Jesus says love your neighbour as yourself, what exactly or who exactly does he mean by that? Who is my neighbour? Secondly, what does it mean to love in this context? And that's an important question because... You know, at, at the best of times, defining terms is very important for good communication. But I suspect that a term like love, as as Terry pointed out last week, and as I'll be reminding us again this morning, love in our cultural context has become um, a pretty slippery term, and it can be used in a lot of ways that are quite different to what Scripture intends when it uses the term love. And then finally, what does it mean to love another as myself? So those three questions are going to be the focus of our time together this morning. And to begin at a very fundamental level, the basis of human, or universal, if you will, uh, human dignity and worth is grounded in the very beginning of the text of, of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, verses 27 and 28. God created humankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. There you have, even though many would not want to admit this, would not want to credit Let's say the Judeo Christian heritage of the modern West. This is fundamentally ground zero for what we built our civilization upon. The universal nobility of humankind, grounded in the belief that we all share, regardless of whatever differences there may exist, the vast diversity that exists between people. We share this one thing at least in common. We are all creatures made in the image of God. That's where we find our dignity and our worth. And that's the basis upon which we ought to relate to one another, to treat one another And built upon this fundamental truth, it's interesting you get a few little snippets in the scriptures. In the Old Testament, Genesis chapter 9, for example, in verse 6, when whoever sheds human blood, by humans shall their blood be shed. For in the image of God has God made humankind. What's the problem with murder? Why is murder morally so reprehensible? Well, precisely because... We're made in the image of God. James in the New Testament speaks of the tongue. Here he speaks of the tongue that we use on the one hand to praise our Lord and Father, but on the other hand, and at the same time, we can use the same tongue to curse human beings. The problem with that, why is that a contradiction? Why is that wrong in that sense? Well, because... Our fellow human beings are made in the image of God. And so, I guess in summary, I, I would put it this way, how we view and treat people is directly related to how we view and treat God. And conversely, how we view and treat God has a direct influence upon how we view and treat our fellow human beings. So there is there is the foundation when we ask the question of who is our neighbour, our neighbour is our fellow human being. And where is that neighbourliness born? From what is it derived? It is derived from the reality that each one of us are created in the image of God and therefore each one of us are equally worthy of value, nobility, because... Of God, our Creator. Now, what do we mean by love and and shades of love? And I think this is important for us to understand. I know in a couple of other contexts um, I've I've sort of explained this. So, if this is familiar territory for you, good. Um, uh, It's never 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 lost to sort of be reminded of these things. If it's new to you, good. Perhaps even better, because I think these are very fundamentally important for us to understand. I think, helpfully, perhaps providentially, the Greeks had a number of terms for what in English we translate with the word love. Uh, The Greeks were more precise with their shades of meaning, their nuances of terminology, etc., Uh, eros, which I suspect that most of us are familiar with, I've described here as passion. Now, when we think or hear of eros, it usually has a negative connotation, but that's not really inherent in the term itself. It's speaking about passion. Now, very often in the human experience, eros is misdirected and skewed, as it were, Often, more often than not, perhaps, in the direction of uh, sexual immorality. That's where you get more familiar words like erotica, for example. But the word itself speaks to passion. So it's, we'd be wrong to think that eros is evil or wrong in any sense, in and of itself. Properly directed eros is important, is vital. Passion. And if we were going to illustrate it with a diagram, we would probably come up with something as simple as this. You notice me on the left hand side and the other on the right hand side. And so we would draw an arrow from the other pointing back towards myself because it is it is a self-centred expression of love. Again, not necessarily wrong or evil, but it is fundamentally about, about my passion, my feelings, etc. Secondly, phileo, um, friendship. Akin to storge, which, which interestingly isn't, to the best of my knowledge, isn't used in the New Testament scriptures, storge relates to the same idea of friendship but applied specifically to, to family love, love within a family unit. I, I would take it as basically the same, the same thing. Friendship love, so again, looking at that model, me on the left-hand side, the other, on the right-hand side, it would probably be something like looks something like this: a double-ended arrow, pointing both ways. There is a sense of quid pro quo. I'll scratch your back if you scratch my back. There's a sense of cooperation involved there. And again, nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that. Um, uh, Eros and Philo are good, but they're made better when they 're crowned with agape, and of course agape, as we hear, sometimes I, I fear uh, ad nauseam uh, in terms of a repetition, and sometimes when we hear things over and over again, uh, it, it can, it, we can get a deaf ear to it, um, but we need to really get a handle on this fundamental meaning of agape, because agape hands down the vast, vast majority of times when the scripture talks about love, whether it's talking about our love for one another, whether it talks about God's love for us, it's, it's agape, the term that's being used, unconditionally. So it's not based upon whether the person deserves it or not. It's unconditional, even sacrificially even to the point of suffering loss myself in order to exercise love. I will and I do what is in the best interests of the other. So if this were to be diagrammed, I would suggest it would go something like this, from me as a gift, if you will, towards the other. And that's divine love. And just before we move on, let me emphasize one thing. I'm not saying that Eros and Phileo are inferior, necessarily, or that they can be, they're unimportant and can be left off. What I'm saying is that Agape, so says the God who was passionate. So says the God who is faithful to covenant. There's Eros. There's Phileo but it needs to be crowned. It needs to come under the umbrella, if you will, of agape. That's why I'm not sure if the colour coding, I've deliberately used gold because if you put red and yellow together, you get orange. But I've outlined it, you'll notice, with purple, the regal royal colour because this is the way that God loves. What about this idea of Loving the other as myself. And I want to dwell, I've got two slides for this one. I want to dwell on this because I think, again, this is somewhat, has become somewhat countercultural in the modern West today, including in the church, I think. The ethical, what I call the ethical triangle, a framework for Christian ecological and social ethics, so our relationships from person to person, but also our relationships more broadly with, with the world, with the creation. Now, remember, we're building upon that fundamental foundation of agape, unconditionally acting in the best interests of the other. Or, as Jesus says, what's often referred to as the golden rule in Matthew chapter 7, in in the, the Sermon on the Mount, treating others as you want them to treat you. This is important, and I know that's the case because... This theme of loving your neighbour is repeated time and time again in scripture. We've already noted Jesus' reference point in Leviticus chapter 19. Um, Jesus himself in Matthew 7.12, the golden rule if you will, Matthew 19.19 and 22.39, Jesus explicitly quotes Leviticus 19. Love your neighbour as yourself. Paul picks up that same phrase and applies it to Christians. James explicitly picks up that same phrase and applies it to Christians. And of course, it permeates throughout the New Testament. I haven't even referenced here the many, the many statements that the Apostle John, for example, makes about the centrality of not just the love of God. God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. God is love, said John. But he also said, if we say that we love God, but we don't love our brother or a sister, then we're a liar. Again, you'll notice that necessary connection between each one of those. The way we treat God, the way we view God, is reflected in the way we view and treat our fellow human beings and vice versa. Now I want to highlight what I think is a common mistake. Very often, we look at that phrase, love God and love your neighbour as yourself, as, as establishing a hierarchy. One, two, three. Number one is God. No controversy there. No debate there. Number two is the other. And number three is self. And very often, if we're thinking in hierarchical terms, priorities. Num- priority number one is God. Priority number two is the other. Priority number three, a, 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 a last lowly, the bottom rung of the ladder, is me. What a worm, what a doormat I am. Very often, in my experience, certainly, is that Christians. Derive that picture from texts like Matthew twenty-two, and I think I think we missed the point. I think a better way of understanding it and illustrating it is this: a triangle. You'll notice God at the top, at the apex of the triangle, Corum Deo, which is which is just a fancy Latin way of saying. Be careful little eyes what you see. Be careful little hands what you do. Be careful little feet where you go. Living in the presence of God. Living in the presence of God. Everything we do, every experience is lived in the presence of God. And if we're mindful, it ought to be to the glory of God. no question about the propriety of putting God number one. No question about that at all. But you'll notice the triangle puts others and self on equal footing. Now, just cast your mind back earlier, Genesis chapter 1, what's the basis of humanity's dignity and worth? The fact that we're created the image of God. And that that is what we, despite whatever differences there might be, whatever other variations there might be, that's what all human beings share in common and for that reason, we're all on an equal plane, if you will. We all share that ground at the base of the triangle, all equally relating to God as our, as our creator. And the interesting thing with this pattern, you'll notice, as those arrows uh, indicate, the closer that we move to God, the closer we move together, the closer we are drawn together, The more we progress up that triangle, that pyramid, if you will, towards God, the closer we are drawn together. And that ought to express, to illustrate the experience of the church, a community of God's people. As we seek to grow in Christ-likeness and grow closer to God, so too we ought to be growing closer to one another. Others... uh, People, obviously, I think, as we've already established, fellow creatures that are made in the image of God. But also I want to suggest to you, because we're given the responsibility of stewardship by God. Remember, God made us in his image, male and female, and he charged us with responsibility to be fruitful and multiply and to to go and effectively wrestle with that wild creation, subduing it, our relationship to the broader creation fits in this category of responsibility as well. Um, Basically, if you look at that triangle and we're seeking to operate on that basis, we're always going to enjoy a win-win situation. It's always going to be a matter of seeking mutual blessing, mutual blessing. And it's all possible based upon our relation to God. Now, to illustrate that further, I want to, just for illustrative purposes, and I guess because of the topical nature of domestic violence, um, I want to talk briefly about a cycle of abuse, which is very simple, but I want to unpack it in light of Paul's statement in Second Corinthians chapter seven, verses nine and ten. And of course, here Paul is writing to the church at Corinth, whom earlier he had rebuked because they were tolerating without disciplining, without without holding accountable a brother who apparently was engaged in some form of immorality. Um, He had his, his father's wife, I think it was, off the top of my head. And Paul rebuked the church for not acting on that, for not saying that is unacceptable behaviour. And it seems that Paul's rebuke did cause the church to act but they were apparently, it would seem, at risk of of over-punishing the individual. It would seem that they had had been reformed, they had repented of their action, but the church was still, it almost was becoming an issue of vindictiveness rather than discipline, it, it, it seems. And in the light of that, when Paul's seeking to correct that back off, accept him now, he makes this statement. I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, not that when I rebuked you in the beginning it it cut you to the heart, though that was necessary in order to motivate you to act in this regard. But that your sorrow, notice, led to repentance. And it's important to recognise that Sorrow and repentance, you'll notice, are different. Oftentimes we think, of, oh, I feel sorry, I'm sorry. Well, that's fine. You're on the path to repentance, but you haven't arrived at repentance yet. Godly sorrow leads to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner, that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation. And, of course, in this context and the context of our lesson this morning, when we read salvation there, I want to suggest to you that you think in relational terms. Think of reconciliation, where a relationship is, is healed, is, is mended. It's, the relationship is saved. And so notice the process, godly sorrow, step one, if you will. Ideally, it will lead to repentance, change of mind, step two, if you will. And ideally, that will lead to... Reconciliation in relationship, restoring of relationship. Not to be regretted, says Paul, but the sorrow of the world produces death, separation, alienation, destruction. Sorrow of the world is the kind of thing, if you were a burglar and you were caught in the act of burgling, you feel sorry, man. I'm sorry for myself. I'm sorry I was caught. And now I'm going to probably have to suffer consequences. That's worldly sorrow. Godly sorrow is the conviction that I've done wrong by God in doing wrong by another human being who is created in the image of God. How I view, how I treat my fellow human beings reflects how I view and how I treat God. So, we think of the cycle of abuse. And of course, typically, abuse occurs and there is abuser regret. I'm so sorry. Oh, I'm so sorry. Please forgive me. I'll make it up to you. I'll never do it again. And here's the critical point. If there are no consequences or conditions, that is, if there's no accountability, to cause the abuser to accept responsibility for their wrongdoing, which is fundamentally repentance, I recognise and I confess that I've done wrong. But that's only going to happen if they're held accountable. Of course, if that doesn't happen then the cycle continues, it's repeated. Because it's a simple mathematical formula, if there's no repentance, meaning if there's no change of mind, remember repentance is not the same as just feeling sorry, and it's certainly not the same as feeling sorry for yourself. If that doesn't happen, then there's no change of behaviour. So why wouldn't the cycle just repeat over and over and over again? My point is this, agape, unconditional love, which is what God commands of disciples of Jesus, does not condone or enable sinful behaviour, nor does it invite or tolerate exploitation. Now, I want to, I want to really bring that home because in our world today, the tendency seems to be, you know, if you hold somebody accountable you're not being nice. A lot of a lot of churches broadly speaking have long ago abandoned anything remotely looking like church discipline because we've outgrown that. That's nasty. Oh, we wouldn't treat one another that way. Well, I want to suggest to you that that thinking is of the world, not of God, not of the spirit of God. But that sort of thinking permeates our society and it has infiltrated the thinking of many, many believers. As a result, we step back from holding people, holding one another to account for our behaviour. Now this might shock you. But that's not love. Whatever else it is, you might, you know, we can explain it perhaps or understand it in psychological terms. Because oh, I feel so uncomfortable, man. I'm not going to talk to them because because it makes me feel uncomfortable. Well, guess who that's about? That's not love. It's certainly not agape. It's, If anything, it's it's the eros type of love, if you're going to call it love at all, because it's all about me honouring my feelings, my desires, I don't want to risk rejection. I don't want to risk hurting someone's feelings. Well, wait a minute. Wait a minute. In the case of the illustration here, if, for example, a husband were abusing his wife, you don't tell the wife, well, just suck it up. Because you don't want to judge. Goodness me, we don't want to judge. We don't want to hold accountable. And that's good advice if you want to just enable sin and reinforce a repeating cycle. But to hold to account and say, no, this behaviour is not acceptable. Not just because I think so, because God says it's sin. And if I'm going to love you, meaning if I'm going to do what's in your best interest, you know what, I'm going to do everything I can to try and stop you sinning. Because if it just left to run its course, come the day of judgement, it's not going to end well for you. How is that loving them? Well, it's not. And so, precisely because agape sometimes is, you know, we use that phrase, tough love, That's part of the package of willing and doing what's in the best interests of one another. And in so doing that, we do not invite or tolerate exploitation and abuse. To be a Christian, to act in love, to love your neighbour as yourself, is not to sign up to be a doormat. It is to sign up to seek nothing but the best for the other person, whatever their best interests and needs might be. And if that means they need to be confronted and brought to repentance, then that's agape love. Hmm. Um, Martin committed me to the Good Samaritan, and so I do quickly want to walk through that. Because you, how could you talk about the question of who is my neighbour and not refer to the Good Samaritan? Um, I, I've downloaded this resource and used the photographs um, um, i hope it enhances the reading of the uh, uh of the uh, the parable rather than distract um, most of us i'm sure are familiar with it and i'm thinking that maybe the pictures will help for that reason you know familiarity breeds contempt for that reason the pictures might enhance rather than rather than distract because you know, it's classic on one occasion an expert in the law stood up to test jesus Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Um, just for Aileen's benefit, you might consider this the second lesson, the beginning of the second lesson. What's written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? And his answer is, is, is interesting. Remember, this is a this is a lawyer, an expert in the law. He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. And love your neighbour as yourself. Does that sound familiar? Isn't that interesting? And, and yeah, it's just it's interesting. Uh, you've answered correctly, said Jesus. Do this and you will, you will live. And it's interesting because we, we toy with the question, is, he, is that response the result of hearing Jesus on other occasions? As we read in Matthew 22, what's the greatest commandment? Love God, love your neighbour. So is he just throwing back to Jesus what he's heard from Jesus? Or was this a common position held among the Jews of Jesus' day? It's interesting. I'm not too sure that we could ever answer that question dogmatically one way or another. I just, I just mentioned here that, uh, Rabbi Akiva, and you'll notice the date, born around 50 AD, so a little bit, you know, a couple of years, a couple of decades after Jesus, uh, died in, uh, 135 AD. He was a leading contributor to the Mishnah and the Midrash Halakha. He is referred to in the Talmud as chief of the sages. Rabbi Akiva is recorded as saying that Leviticus 19.18, love your neighbour as yourself, was the greatest principle of the Torah. Again, does that just reflect the common thinking of the Jews, the Jewish hierarchy, the, the scribes and Pharisees, etc., cetera, uh, in the first century? Um, or does it reflect the impact that Jesus had even upon his, his Jewish peers? I, I don't know that you could argue either way, but it's interesting. Either way, it was unanimous. These are the core issues. This is the lens through which we understand the will of God. So, you've answered correctly, says Jesus. Do this and you will live. But, and this is the whole testing thing, he wasn't saying he had had to justify himself. He wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbour? Hmm. In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. When he was attacked by robbers, they stripped him of his clothes, beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place, He saw him and passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he travelled, came where the man was and when he saw him, he took pity on him. Now, you know the significance of that, don't you? In fact, we have a modern day example that we could, without too much imagination, understand how radical this statement is from Jesus as he's reading this story to a bunch of Jews and he casts as the hero of the story a Samaritan that would be about the same today in the Middle East as talking about a Jew being helped by a Palestinian or vice versa they're mortal enemies they're trying to blow one another up fundamentally many of them deny the right of the other to exist. I want to suggest to you it wasn't that much different in terms of animosity between Jew and Samaritan in the first century. And you know the history of the Samaritan. People You remember the Northern Kingdom was taken off into captivity in 722 BC with the Assyrians. And in their place, the Assyrians brought in foreigners non-israelites and they struggled in the land scriptures even tell us about so much say that they appeal to the authorities the, the the animals the lions keep eating us and whatnot the god of the land that you've sent us to must be angry with us so we need to know about their religion so that we can please this god and he'll stop pestering us by lions eating our children And so they learned and came to embrace the Torah, the law of Moses. And we see wonderful reflections of this in in the Gospels. Remember Jesus and the woman, the Samaritan woman at the well? She talks about Gerizim, where her fathers, the Samaritans, worshipped God. But you Jews say that that Jerusalem, Mount Zion, is the proper place to worship God. Again, that's just a reflection of that long disputed history after the Babylonian captivity when when that generation was returned to Israel. You remember all the struggles that the Israelites, the Jews went through in re establishing themselves in Jerusalem? You just gotta read books like Ezra and Nehemiah, to get a sense of that struggle, as far as the population that had settled in that region, which included largely the Samaritans, as we know of them in the first century, they were invaders. I don't care that you were here 70 plus years ago. You've left, man, and now this is our home and you are unwelcome. Hello, stepping forward to whatever, 2,000 plus years later. It's the same old story, Israel, Palestine, struggling for ownership, who belongs, who doesn't belong. That's the power of the story that Jesus tells here with the parable of the good Samaritan. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the men on his own donkey, brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbour to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, go and do Likewise, go and do likewise. Interesting, I think, Jesus effectively turns the question of who is my neighbour into a very different question, related but, but different. Which person was neighbourly? Which person was neighbourly? The priest? The Levite? Both Jews, upstanding Jews? no. It was the much maligned surprise, surprise Samaritan, and of course that question presupposes that everyone is our neighbor, as we've discovered earlier, all of us created in the image of God, everyone is our neighbor, and that our responsibility is to be merciful to all. I love Lunig. I think I've mentioned publicly many times that I think he's one of the more profound theologians that Australia has produced. I don't know how he'd feel about being described as a theologian, but he just has a knack for insight. And I can't help but suspect that he has the Good Samaritan in the back of his mind as he created this cartoon. The homeless character, of course, and the individual walking by the other side. One homeless, the other heartless. Which of course cuts right against the fundamental teaching of Jesus to cite again Matthew 7, 12 here. So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. And so... We might consider this cartoon, I don't know who created this to give them credit for it, but uh, it does such a good job of capturing the sense. If you've had opportunity to read points of interest yet, you'll notice in that short article the reference given to the need to see Jesus in the other person. The need to see Jesus in the other person. And we can, of course, if we understand again, Jesus is God, when we look at a fellow human being created in the image of God, it's not an unreasonable step to think in terms of seeing Jesus in them. But I want to suggest to you that we also need to see ourselves in the other. And so we bring to bear things like compassion. Wherever you have a word, com, it's common, it's lying alongside of one another. to be empathic, empathia, in feeling, feeling with the other person. There but for the grace of God go I. And I want to suggest to you that that's precisely the sort of thing that came to the mind of the Samaritan when he saw this fellow human being look beyond nationality and culture, and and everything else, what he saw was a fellow human being in need. That's all I need to know. That's all I need to know. Because there but for the grace of God go I. If I were in that situation, what would I want somebody to do for me? Just a concluding text. It's one that I can't end this lesson without referring to. It is so radical but fundamental. You've heard that it was said, because Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, love your neighbour and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his his Sun, sorry, to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. So, the unconditional nature of God's love. If you love those who you love, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? You see, Eros and Phileo are common among even those who have no regard for God. Because to function in life, we've got to get along together. To get joy in life, I have to feed my passion. In order to get along in life, I have to engage in that quid pro quo process. I'll do this if you do that. And all of that's good and necessary and right, but Jesus invites us to go one better, to add on top of that agape, the kind of love that God loves with, unconditional, even sacrificial love. Be perfect, be complete, be whole as your Father, your Heavenly Father is perfect. Interesting, um, to go back to Leviticus 19, which is the source of this idea, this statement about loving your neighbour as yourself, The context begins, the Lord said to Moses, speak to the entire assembly of Israel and say to them, be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. It doesn't take a lot to see that this is the sort of thing from scripture that Jesus has in the back of his mind, even when he's speaking in what we know of or what we call the Sermon on the Mount. Do not, verse 18, do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbour as yourself. That's interesting because you notice the statement that Jesus says, you've heard it said, love your neighbour and hate your enemy. Where did that come from? That's not from the law of Moses. I believe in this context that Jesus is not making a contrast between this is what Moses said and this is what I say. This, that's the old stuff. This is the new stuff. What, rather, he's dealing with is the oral traditions of the rabbis of the of the Jews, and very often with those oral traditions, even though a lot of it sounded quite biblical, there was there was a distortion. And in this case, it's very explicit: love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And you think how did, how could they have arrived there? Well, maybe. You know Psalm 139, just for one one example. That's that wonderful psalm where the psalmist praises God, declaring, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. Where can I go from your spirit? You're everywhere. Thank you, God. Your enemies are my enemies. Your enemies are my enemies. And I just wonder if, if in rationalising, maybe they pick up a statement like that and say, well, if you're my enemy, then you must be God's enemy and therefore you're, I'm warranted in hating you. So yes, I love, I love my neighbour. And they would probably narrowly define that as my fellow Jew, certainly not a Samaritan. God wouldn't be that weird. I'll love my fellow Jew, but I'll hate my enemies because, as I'll rationalise it in my mind, my enemies are God's enemies, God's enemies are mine. Jesus said, no, none of those games. None of those games. You just love your neighbour, which includes not just the Jews, but everybody, including your enemy, including a Samaritan. You love them like God loves them. Unconditionally. Now, I've played a bit of a game here. I've steered clear of Australian characters because I thought that politically that could be a bit provocative. But I figured this was safe at least to bring home the message. What would it be like if Putin and Zelensky were to relate to one another as Jesus instructs? To love your enemies... As themselves, or perhaps the likes of the Trumpster and Joe Biden. People would be a lot less concerned, I'd say, about what might or might not happen in America if these leaders were disposed towards one another based upon what's in their best interests. So, in conclusion, who is my neighbour? Well, when we embrace agape, which is to love as God loves, all humanity is the object of God's compassionate love, so we should be compassionate towards all. We have a responsibility towards all people because of our common humanity, imago day. What does it mean to love in this context? Again, to love as God loves unconditionally, even... Sacrificially, and this includes one's enemies. And finally, what does it mean to love another as myself? Again, to love as God loves, seeking what is in the other's best interests with a view to mutual flourishing.